Hey everyone, it's Paul Anleitner here, and you're listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. This is a podcast that's dedicated to exploring the intersection of theology with all of our attempts to find meaning and purpose in the world. Through the intersection of theology and philosophy, theology and science, theology and the arts and media and popular culture. So we have some pretty fascinating conversations. Recently, I've had the great privilege of talking to some really just brilliant, insightful guests. This week's episode is a little bit different. In fact, I am on the other end of the interview where uh, I actually got to sit down recently with Adam Russell and the Ferment podcast. Adam is the head of Vineyard Music, and he's just a, a wonderful pastor of a great vineyard church down in Campbellsville, Kentucky. And Adam was in town here in the Twin Cities, and we got to sit down in my office, and he we wanted to have me on for a conversation about my unique journey of faith as someone growing up in um, pretty unique, charismatic expression of evangelicalism and my journey into sort of the, the world of academic and scholarly theology and a whole bunch of stuff in between there. And boy, guys, this was just such a special conversation for me. And uh, several of you that have listened to it have reached out already, listened to it on the Ferment podcast and just shared how hearing my story was so encouraging to you. And honestly, I told Adam this afterwards. It's something that one day I plan on playing for my kids when they're kind of old enough to understand some of the stuff that I'm talking about in this episode. So it it really is a personal story uh, of my own journey. And I think it can be hopefully of some encouragement to you guys. So again, Today's episode is actually from the Ferment podcast, and Adam and his team over there were gracious enough to let me repost it and to share it with you guys. So I'll also provide links in the description of this podcast if you want to check out more about what they're doing at the Ferment podcast. I I frequently listen in. They host such wonderful conversations about God and church life and worship arts. And so if those are things of particular interest to you, especially those of you that might have a charismatic inclination, then you're going to want to check them out as well. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. I choose to have a date with my wife, we go to eat somewhere. And you've got all these people that are gathered in this spot and they're having these sacred moments together over food, over drink. And it's like the Eucharist is all around us. Yeah. Communion is happening all around us. And so I think one of the things we get to facilitate is we get to highlight where Christ is already present and at work. We get to name it. And then we get to also play the role of correcting the distortions. So we've got counterfeit experiences of truth, goodness, and beauty. You're listening to the Ferment Podcast, conversations about worship and transformation. Today's guest is Paul Anleitner. Paul is a worship pastor and the host of the Deep Talks Podcast, exploring theology and meaning making. Paul is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
All right, what up, everybody? You're listening to the Ferment Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Russell. And I have a friend that I've only known on the internet. <laughs> and we're finally sitting in the same room, Paul Ann Leitner. And I'm in Minnesota. You're here. That's right. Yeah, that's really funny because you and I have been talking on Twitter for a while now, me, you, and Andy Squires in some yeah. ways. And we finally meet. Well, Andy had brought you up a while back. I was talking with Andy maybe a year or two ago about coming out to Charlotte for some sort of conference or thing that was going on. And he was like, no, 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 man. If you're going to go to something, I'm going to this thing at this vineyard church in Kentucky with this guy, Adam Russell. And he's like, that's the thing you should go to. Don't come to this thing that's happening in Charlotte. And that's I was so like, funny. oh man, it didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> but he's like, by the way, we're doing that thing again this year in August. So maybe oh, you can come. You? Yeah, that's right. Nice. That's really funny. Um, I was talking to my wife this morning because I have to catch a flight here in a little bit. And she says, what are you doing this morning? I'm like, well, I'm going to meet my internet friend, Paul. <laughs> don't worry, hon. She's like, it's totally normal. She's like, is this a date? I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. So it's really cool to actually do this. Um, one of the things I've picked up in just our internet interactions is that you're a scholar of sorts. You've gone on a scholarly journey. And so maybe we could talk about that because I also know that you're a charismatic of sorts as well, or yeah, that's your history. Definitely. So maybe we could just start there. Uh, where did you grow up and what was your faith tradition? Yeah, so I grew up, my parents are first generation evangelicals. Um, they became Jesus followers in the late 70s. My mom's pathway into it, she had grown up in pretty rigid Catholicism. And that's not to say that, you know, Catholics aren't, can't be followers of Jesus, but from her experience, the she was in a pretty rigid relationship less Catholicism and her gateway into following Jesus was very much in like the charismatic gifts of the spirit, mystical experiences. And that for her was like, that was like, man, this thing is real. Yeah. This, God this, is real. God is real. And she needed that. She needed that um, for her. My dad's path was a little different. He was a jock. He was a football player at Wayne State University. In fact, he's got, you know, he listens to probably everything I put out. So he'll be so happy that I bring this up. Yeah, that's right. You know, he had Wayne State University's uh, as a six foot, uh, 190 pound middle linebacker set their all time tackle record. And he's in their hall of fame. And so your dad is an animal. He was an, he was an animal. He didn't, he, he had no faith background at yeah. all. Yeah. And I'm sure there's some wild stories he still hasn't told me That's about right. those days. That's right. But for him, the pathway was a little bit more through the mind. Um, he had some guys on campus that were doing, you know, uh, like fellowship of Christian athlete stuff was reaching out to him, relational stuff. Um, he had heard some prolific college football coaches give their testimony. He was interested. And then someone gave him a, uh, it was like a you know, the classic like Josh McDowell book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he really needed that the the world to to make sense. He needed the he needed it to be more my mom, not to say that my mom doesn't didn't have like a rich life of the mind and it's, it's two ways of knowing. It is, it is. And that ends up being like me <laughs> because yeah, yeah. they came to Christ in in that way and uh, ended up getting involved early on in their marriage with a, a non-denominational church. The founding pastors were 
you know, had grown up in pretty cessationist Baptist circles, Southern Baptist, and then they had got what they just called got the spirit, yeah. right? Which, yeah. I, you know, just to be clear, I think like cessationist Baptists actually have the spirit. Yes, they do. Too. Yeah. But that's what they called it. You know, they got the full gospel. Yes. You know, these are pretty pejorative terms that, yes. but that's, that's how they understood it. And so they, um, they were part of this church, uh, had sort of this, uh, really heavy emphasis on speaking in tongues, especially that was a big deal. You know, my parents really prided themselves on leading other people and still do like, we want to have people, we, we, we prayed with this couple that received the spirit and helped, you know, speak in tongues. That was really big. So and even it, though your dad was sort of like, came through this Josh McDowell, maybe more yeah, heady he, way, he's yeah. still, he embraced he, all of it. Yeah, yeah. So he's all the way in. Yeah. And this boy, this is so weird for probably most people, like their experiences. It was really heavy on that and really heavy on uh, the gift of healing. And that led us into the 90s. And our church had really become a full on word of faith church. I remember as a kid, my parents, as part of my summer, my summer chores, like I had to read Kenneth Copeland's Daily Devotional. Okay. Um, I probably went so to put away your laundry. Yeah, put away your laundry and, and read this. Make your bed. Yes, and then you know you got to read the the daily devotional from from Kenneth Copeland. And I I don't know probably went to four or five Benny Hinn crusades as a kid. Yeah, did you ever get slayed by? Didn't you know what's funny? I never like, and there was a legitimate full on revival that hit my church in my freshman year of high school, like a real one. Yeah, and not just it really wasn't manufactured. It was, and I know people like, how can you tell the difference? Uh, I don't have time to unpack that right now, probably, but it was it was a really authentic thing, marked by repentance, genuine repentance, like salvation, real fruits of the spirit being made manifest in people's lives, which yeah. is the evidence, right, of the yeah. spirit's working. So, I'd been in that 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 arena of um, all sorts of all sorts of wild experiences that. Are, I found aren't normative for people, you know, even in evangelical circles, that wasn't, wasn't the case of like, what, you didn't go to Benny, Benny Hinn crusades when you were Well, it's like Andy Squires often says, it's really hard to be a charismatic. It is. <laughs> it's fine as long as you hang out with other charismatics. And then you realize when you hang out with some other people or even non-church people, like those experiences are not as common. Yeah, no. And I brushed up against that early on. Even as a kid, you'd go to these wild things. You asked me about being like slain in the spirit, and I never felt like I had to fall down. Yeah, ever. Like I never, I never felt like, I, boy, I'm really. And um, I probably had some courtesy falls, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Again, some people listening. Yeah, that's so right. Like, what are you talking? That's right. We know. But yes. if you're, but if you, if you came from the tradition that you and I came from, you know what a courtesy yes. fall is. Yeah, where it's like, well, I know, I know the preacher's just pushing me, but yeah. everyone else is going down. I don't yeah. want to be a jerk. So yeah. I guess I'll go down too. Um, but there was early on cognitive dissonance already with the over-realized eschatology that we were being presented with, which uh, was like, 
the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now. And it was very actually transactional. It was a transactional way of understanding the world that Christ's death on the cross legally purchased these things that you now have a claim to. So not only did he legally purchase forgiveness of sins, he legally purchased for you your healing. And essentially- Because it's in the atonement. It's in the atonement, right? By Mm -hmm. his stripes, you were healed. And you hear that it's past tense. It's already happened. And so what you have to do is find a way- and it's not like everybody used this language, but this is me reframing it now. Yeah. It's like n- your job now is to access the thing that already exists. Which there's a lot of pressure in that. Lots of pressure. So a great example of this was, um, I remember as a kid, the, the pastor at our church's sister was dying of cancer. And I remember as a kid going to these nights of prayer and they we had these scripts that we would pray through, like p- positive confession, you know, faith, because we didn't want to be praying things that weren't faith yeah. or unbelief. And, and tragically, she died at the end of that that journey. And as a kid, actually, you know, her um, she passed away and her son was at our house when, when she died. And I remember, uh, I mean, I remember like his yesterday, sitting in my living room and uh, his dad comes home to him and he takes him into our bedroom to break oh. the bad news, the horrific news. And it's like, even early on, there was... So whose fault was that? Was the question, first question in my mind. And even mm. I'd go to these Benny Hinn crusades, stuff like that, and um, see pretty wild things. And, and then also have my own things that would come in going, like, I want I want this to be made right. And it, and it wasn't, it, it didn't happen. Yeah. And so that is the question, right? Like, so if it doesn't happen, then whose fault is it? Right. And if it is a hyper-realized eschatology, if healing is in the atonement, then... You have to take responsibility. Yeah, right. And that's that's. And at the same time, you and I both know uh, there are things that happen in those meetings. Definitely. That are God. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I mean, that, and that makes it even. That actually makes it worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm saying that kind of like tongue in cheek, but yeah. it, it, it increases the the difficulty. Yeah. Because you know. Yeah. I've seen real. I've seen real actual healings. Me too. I've seen deaf people. Yes. Like that. Um, yeah, there's a kid at my church. Sweet, sweet boy. His name is Elijah. He was born deaf. A kid named Elijah born deaf. Wow. Right? <laughs> and we prayed for him three times and he got his hearing back. Amazing. One, he's, he's normal. He's fine. Yeah. I, I mean, so I've seen too much, right? And yet. Yeah. And yet the formula doesn't work all the time. And that's really what it was, was a formula of ritual and of, I hesitate to use this word, but it's what it's most similar to like incantations of saying certain spells, repeating certain things. So if the thing is already done and it's, it's completed, which I do believe in a sense it is true, but it's just a matter of whether or not the future fully comes into the now. Yeah. You know, the, I think the future eschatological rule and reign of Christ is, you know, I, I believe this by faith is that you know the resurrection which really was a historical event is yes. the promise of a very historical renewal of all things i believe that with my whole heart that's why i'm doing what i do with my life that's right i i believe that i believe that the resurrection of jesus is jesus is the first green leaf of spring oh that's beautiful that's the way i think about it i grew up on a strawberry farm oddly enough 
And I remember, yeah, speaking of childhood experiences, most people don't have. That's right. Yeah. But I grew up on a strawberry farm and I remember when the fields, they would bloom before the, the fruit would come. But then then the fruit would set and they'd be all these green strawberries. But then eventually there'd be the first red strawberry, right? And we'd go out and eat it. And it's the best one because it's the first, you'd, you'd go out and look for them. And um, it occurred to me that Jesus is that first ripe berry of spring. And when you get the first one, you know that others are coming, right? That's kind of the way I think about it. Yeah. Or, or frame that event. That's beautiful. Yeah. I want to steal that. I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful. Definitely. Is. So something is happening. And even I noticed the, the other day when I was flying into Minnesota, uh, Kentucky, we're fully into spring. All the leaves are out. I'm flying in. There's no leaves. Yeah. Right? I mean, we like had snow here like a week ago or so. <laughs> but but where I came from, it is spring and it is mm. going to happen here. Yeah, definitely. Right? There we go. I think that I think that's a much more helpful view of eschatology or the work of the kingdom. Yeah. That's coming. The problem was like for example in our in our specific tradition was that the the founding pastors had come from this place of um where they came from. So much of what we do, and I was talking with a young man about this the other day who was uh, exploring, um, he's grown up evangelical, kind of exploring, uh, having questions about Catholicism, for example. And, you know, it was funny, I was telling him, you know, there's a lot of people at our church here that grew up Catholic, and then they got to this certain phase. So much of what we do is uh, like a polemic against our past and the things that didn't work in our past. And so we think the we think that the truth is automatically like the anti-truth of where we were. So for no, these, novelty is very appealing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's understandable. It's yeah. like, we got to go looking for something else that helps us make sense of reality and helps us live in the world in a yeah. meaningful way. So we just can't, we can't turn that off. That's written into humanity. Mm. So our, you know, our founding pastors had come from a very, God wants you sick. That's how he teaches you how he loves you. Yeah. Um, you know, very, anything, any hope that you might have is a future hope in the sweet by and by. Yeah. And uh, the stuff that you saw in the New Testament died with the canon of scripture. So they had spent so much time in that and that doesn't work either. And that, you know, that isn't the gospel. It's not, it's not New Testament Christianity. And so oftentimes the pendulum swings in the opposite direction. And so I think discern anybody like listens to your program, because I think it does. I've, I've noticed, I mean, your podcast comes up on the list of, uh, what other people are listening to with my podcast. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And there's this, um, there's this mass exodus of evangelicals ha leaving the church and exploring other things, this deconstructing phase. And like a word of wisdom, if anybody hears something from at least this part of my story, it's just be careful of pendulum swings. Yeah. Going from one ditch to the other. The truth isn't automatically, this is a very American idea, progressive idea is that Talk about that more. Like, yeah. In what way? It, we have this, and it's, it's probably elsewhere too, yeah. but I've only lived in America, so I can only speak no, to no, that. I think that's, that's good ground. And it's happening right now. It's a, it's a cultural phenomenon. We think that the truth is anything that's in the opposite direction of the past. So we have this 
chaotic deconstructive movement that's happening in just Western thought. Mm -hmm. The destruction of institutions, the destruction of definitions of things. The destruction of story. The destruction of story, the destruction of meta narratives, yeah. because this, you know, there is this, you know, postmodern critique that all meta narratives are a mask for a play for power. That's right. Because people have been really, really hurt mm -hmm. by overarching stories which attempt to unify people and then they see the unification and there's been subjugation instead of unification that's right so we have this thing going on where it's like anything that moves you away from the past has got to be got to be true and this creeps into our, our our life of faith and our spirituality where any of our experiences so it was really easy for me to take this back to my own story to th to think about that experience or to fast forward a little bit later and see these other i've seen mentors uh die of cancer in their 50s, to have a close friend lose his daughter, to have these experiences where the, it didn't seem like the kingdom was happening right now. Yeah, It didn't seem like the spirit of God lived in us. Mm -hmm. that's, what it, that's what it felt like. It was very easy and it would have been very easy. And honestly, just by the grace of God, I didn't land here to go in one of two paths. One was just toss the whole thing out. Yeah, become a nihilist. Become a nihilist, throw it all out. Right, maybe embrace some other narrative that explains reality better than this, because this doesn't seem to be working. You know, there could be the other path of just going, you know, sort of a like a I might just call it like a theistic fatalism. Mm. This is all God's doing, right? Yeah. And there's some traditions that that maybe in the the Christian the Christian story have emphasize that and that's that's one way of dealing with those right yeah those are tough too though yeah they are yes yeah, it's, it's really hard to love a god who might be a monster yeah especially when you you can't call him that yeah it, it does something very when you have to say it's for his glory yeah and glory glory i i really detest that term i don't even i i tend to stay away from it in like songs that we sing too because I think it's a, like a biblical term, but the way we understand it is like this medieval king who has this need for gold to be brought to him by the peasants of his kingdom. And if he doesn't get enough gold, he's going to be really, really ticked. And it's, yeah. it's, it, it's not this self-emptying, crucified God. You know, what was, <laughs> I mean, Jesus, Jesus thought, well, now the, he said, now the son will be glorified. Yeah. What was he pointing to? His cross. His cross. Yeah, it's it's the Gospel of John in particular. The Gospel of John in particular, like it sort of reframes the word glory forever. Definitely. Yeah. And judgment. Yeah. He also, I think it's John twelve. He's in Jerusalem, stand or looking. Maybe he's outside of Jerusalem. I can't remember. It's in the context of Jerusalem, looking ahead towards the work that was to come on the cross, which he made really, really explicit in other gospels, and none of the disciples understood. Like, no, what are you talking about? He's looking at that, and he says, "You know, now's the time for judgment on this world. The prince of this world will be cast out." Yeah. And so I needed to, as I this stuff made me these sorts of experiences made me go, "I gotta, I gotta start reading the Bible." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and what I found was like, okay, man, there is this sense in which uh, there's this sense in which there's truth to what I've heard about the goodness of God. And there's truth to what I've heard about his desire to see people made well and set right. 
and the compassion and, and tender mercy of Jesus as he comes across a leper or a woman who's had this crippling issue with uh, blood that would have made her really unclean in her context in society. And she wouldn't have been able to have any spouse or any mate or contact with people at all. And the compassion of Jesus towards That's her right. just set her right. And so I always picture, I still picture as I, I go, how am I supposed to pray for this situation? I picture what would Jesus of Nazareth do as he walked in the room? I picture somebody, you know, my son used to have a lot of health issues and felt like we were in ICU pretty regularly with stuff. And you'd see these kids, these bald headed kids. Yeah. And I can't even, it pains me. I picture that thing to even yeah. get the sentences out. Yeah. These kids that were pediatric cancer patients. Yeah. I go, man, Jesus, you, if you walked in the room. Yeah, that's right. Well, and there's something even in you that knows that's not okay. Yes. And God is not okay with this. Yeah. So I had to keep a theology that had that. Yeah. Because that seemed like the that seemed like the way Jesus looked at the world. If he if if, if God incarnate said that Satan was the prince of this age, I've got to keep some sort of theology or way of seeing the world that goes, no, evil is a very real phenomenon. And in, in a sense, it's the archon. Mm -hmm. It's the God of this age. And we we have a call to resist that and yeah. to set the world right. So some I've, sort of a warfare worldview. Yeah. There's got to be something to that while making room for mystery, mm -hmm. while, while making room for ambiguity mm -hmm. and to think, I don't have the whole thing explained. And um, so when did you start waking up to this? You said as a kid, you were waking up. Well, like, I think the, you know, the questions first started happening there and it wasn't really until college. There was a series of tragedies in my college to early adult years where um, I was just, you know, uh, nothing makes you reassess reality like suffering mm -hmm. and tragedy. And so these situations made me again come face to face with the questions I'd put on the shelf. As I, I came to this, and this was actually after I'd made a, a pretty significant commitment to the Lord. It was like later in college. So I had, I had a basketball scholarship and then my freshman year of college, um, I felt like God had really gotten a hold of my life. But a lot of these tragedies had happened already when I was in into my ministry years. I, I you know, I, I've been in vocational ministry since I was 19. Um, the pastors at my church were crazy enough to go, hey, this 19-year-old kid, we want to bring you on staff as our interning pastor. We want to send you out to plant a church. Like, oh, great idea. Stupid idea. Yeah, I'm yeah. thankful that they did it. But a lot of these things were happening already at this point in life. And I like made a decision to follow Jesus. But I, I realized there was these questions that I had been tabling. And I go, if I'm going to live in the world this way, and I'm going to like be telling other people that they should live in the world and view reality this way and view God this way, I, I better be pretty stinking sure. Yeah, it, it, it brings everything up. Yeah. And so even, even being sent out as a 19-year-old man, that actually just amplifies all of that. Totally. Or it would for me. Yeah, my, my, my like first month on the job was in hospice with a close mentor of mine. And I'm sitting there with his wife, who was like close friends to my mom and their daughters were childhood friends of ours. And we're making funeral plans. Whoosh. Yeah. 
welcome to the ministry right well, welcome welcome you yeah. know and so it's like well the option for me is not going to be to pull my head under the covers and go la 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 there's nothing wrong going on here i can't do that that's just never been an option for me it's just my personality it's my makeup so um i think that that just got me uh, it was one reason why i was like i'm gonna i'm just gonna tear apart the bible i'm gonna read it cover to cover all the time. I didn't know what I was doing because we didn't, I grew up also in a tradition that was very anti life of the mind in so many ways. We had our own science that we would do. That's right. You know, it was um, very much, uh, you know, H.R. Nyberg calls it Christ against culture. We had a very Christ against culture. We have our own music that we listen to, our own movies, this Christian subculture. So we have that. And in a particular niche of evangelicalism, we were the life of the mind actually gets in the way of God doing stuff, you know? So yeah, faith I've, and reason are pitted against each other. And I've been in a lot of charismatic meetings where somebody up front said, get out of your head. Let go of your head, let go of your heart, let go of your head and feel him now. Yeah, get right, out of your head. I've, I've, been, I've been in meetings where the, it was, you know, over and over, almost a mantra, get out of your head. Yeah, check your, check your mind at the door. Yeah. So when you live in that and you hear things like, and I, you know, people have listened to my podcast or their interviews, I, this seems to always come up, but I, I heard all the time, like seminaries are cemeteries. Yeah. And so with that, you know, what pursuing, uh, trying to figure out the answers to questions looked like, you very much go on your independent journey because the voices of the past are actually a roadblock and so I started reading the Bible and I go, I don't even want to make sense of this stuff. two things in your story so far yeah. one being like this personal thing and then also like a wider cultural moment happening at the same time yeah where you're saying like okay i, I grew up in this yes faith culture they were both happening where this faith culture that's saying um the spontaneous move of the spirit is that's a that's good yes you know life of the mind not so much we don't trust that but then also a wider cultural moment where at least in and outside of the church where we don't trust the past so much, right? Mm -hmm. Puts you in a perfect spot, mm. you know, mm -hmm. um, of being extremely vulnerable. Yes. Especially if you're holding questions, right? Yeah. 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 I can imagine you would feel fairly alone. Definitely. Totally, totally alone. Um, and thankfully there were some voices that came to my life at that time at that critical juncture that helped me helped open me up to this wider world this more integrated spirituality who were those voices so um you know i'm a my primary way of communing with god even when i was a kid was through music so i and i picked up you know my parents forced me to take piano lessons as a kid which i was now i'm thankful for yeah um picked up the guitar in middle school or high school so i could play like nirvana songs to impress chicks that's and stuff right. like that always yeah. right it smells like teens yeah right here you go yeah. yes one more time yeah which girls love nirvana 
<laughs> no. no, no, they don't. No, they didn't. Yeah. Not. So um, that was the reason why I picked that stuff up. But then, um, you know, just thankfully they're, you know, yeah, this is the, this is the crazy thing. There's so much, there was so much brokenness in our home church and so much good stuff. Mm. I, I look back and I'm thankful, you know, and so that's why I get concerned when people just wholesale want to leave the church. Cause it's like, there's brokenness here and there's certain things that are good reason to leave your church, but there's also like, it's good. It's everywhere. Yeah. So maybe, so I, I celebrate the people that said, Hey, you are a ninth grader in high school. Let's put you up on stage with the worship band and your life is a mess. Probably, yeah. you yes. know, <laughs> probably is. You seem like a decent enough kid who loves Jesus and you're good on guitar. So we're going to throw you up here. And I'm really thankful for that. So uh, the, it really was the gateway for me into communion with God was through music. So I get into my freshman year of college. God really starts getting a hold of my life. And some buddies of mine, this is like, again, like pre-internet days. Yeah. No Bethel, no IHOP. Um, you know, I had some exposure to vineyard stuff, but it was mainly because my local Christian bookstore mm-hmm. I would go to and there would be that. That was that, the only way you found things. Right. Yeah. There was, there was the, oh man, the, the the Vineyard Beautiful, the UK with Samuel Lane. Listen, that's a great record. Oh, gosh, Sam yes. Lane, come yes. on with that. Yeah, yeah. And it was helpful because I was a guy that was like, you know, I don't have I don't have this soprano voice, so I need somebody that that brings a little bit of the the grungy Eddie Vedder. That's right. So Sam Lane's stuff was like, oh, that's awesome. So, anyways, I'm getting in more and more into worship music as a way for me to really connect with God, and I'm I'm falling in love with God through this practice. And some friends of mine, we just had this wild idea. We said, hey, you know, why are we always doing other people's songs on Sunday morning? And in particular, why are we always doing it like just like the Hillsong record? And this yeah. is early Hillsong. This is like, I don't, there was nothing like Hillsong United. I don't think it was just Darlene. Jack yeah, that's and, right. You know, Reuben Morgan. And uh, so we're like, well, yeah, it seems like if we were God, this is how simple our theology was. If we were God, we want to hear what was on your heart, right? So we're like, all right. So our my Sundays look like this. Sunday morning, I would get there. We'd had two services and we'd get there probably 7.30 a.m. for a rehearsal. We do two services. And in our context, you did worship for like at least 45 minutes to an hour. That's right. And then occasionally the preacher would get up and go, I'm not preaching this morning. Let's just keep going. So you'd go for maybe two hours. So we'd have two, two hour services. And then we would come back, take a lunch break. And then we'd have a rehearsal for the next week. Right. And we'd have like a three hour rehearsal. It was ridiculous. <laughs> totally not necessary. Yeah. Then we're like, well, we're already here all day. So some of the guys that were like in my age group that were also involved with this said, well, let's just stick around and let's go over to the youth room and just with our guitars, just play what's on our heart. So we just, we didn't know what we were doing. Nobody I love this. Anything like about prophetic worship, anything like that. And even though we're in a charismatic context, that usually looked like we're going to sing in the spirit at the end of the song for 30 seconds. Yeah. Right. It wasn't like vamping off of new chord progressions or yeah. listening to each other's melodies or anything like that. But we would go back to the youth room and we'd play like a chord or two and we would just go around in a circle singing what's on our heart. And it was like, oh, it was like, this is, this is for me. And did these become songs? Uh, probably eventually, yeah. but I, 
But it was it was more a, a communal yeah. experience. More of, a communal experience. Of, and then meeting other, with God. Yeah. Then other people started coming. And I don't know. Maybe we'd get 20, 25 people in this this room when we were doing it. And then so one of my buddies went back to college and he came back um, came back one weekend. He was like, dude, this guy came to our campus and he's doing the same thing we're doing. I thought we were the only ones. This is how pre-internet world is so detached. It's so hard for people to imagine this. Yeah, this is great. I mean, this was like, you know, there was AOL and stuff, but there was no connection to any sort of larger world. You were just in your local church. That was it, especially as a non-denominational church. We didn't have any conferences, anything like that. So he came back. He's like, this guy came to our college and I loved him. Everybody hated him because he was at a more conservative Christian college. Everybody hated him and I loved him. I got him, got his CD and he's actually coming back to town in a few months. We should go check him out. So he handed me this CD and it said faith on it. Jason Upton. Okay. Yeah. So this is after church. I pump it in my, pop it in my CD player in my car and I just ball. Yeah. I'm like, we're not alone. Yeah. Like there's, there is other people out there. Yeah. Who are doing something spontaneous, free form or whatever yeah. that is. So this is, this is a while. I'm going to try to go through this quickly because I know you're probably not doing a four part series on this. We're, we're <laughs> this not, but it's all good. This is great. So anyway, so he, uh, I popped that in and he comes back, uh, you know, I grew up in the Detroit area. So he came back to a, a church in Ann Arbor and I'm pretty sure the church was like a Presbyterian church. So, uh, we walk in and we got there actually a little bit late and they're already into their music. And as soon as I walk in, I'm like, like I'm feeling, I don't know what I, I don't know. I still don't have the language for it today, but I would say there's a definite sense of transcendence. Yeah. It was, the it's room. the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But, it, but he's always there with us. So yeah. it's like you're just awake awareness. To yeah. You're awake. Yeah, to there it. was an awakening for me, but I walked around, they're doing this. Uh, so J Jason and his, this was very early on in his ministry years. Again, this is before. Uh, for those of you that are like Upton heads, this was like, <laughs> <laughs> they were Uptonites. This was before Jacob's dream. You know, he was actually like just about to put that out and Dying Star. So this is very early on. So there's maybe like 50, 75 people at this this meeting. And I walk in and he's in this song. It's a Morning Star song. We wait, mm -hmm. a Leonard Jones song. We wait upon you, we wait go. for your power. And everybody's standing with their arms folded. Nothing's happening in the room. And I, you know, five minutes in, I'm going like, I'm bugging out. I'm going, maybe I am the weird one. Yeah. Because nobody else is feeling this thing. They keep going, keep going. I mean, 20 minutes into the song, still doing, even so Lord come, mm. Lord come. And uh, nothing, nothing. And like minute 24 of this song, something happens in the room. And everybody that was arms folded goes, and they just lose it in this like Presbyterian church. Yeah. And uh, are people shouting? Oh, yeah. Shouting, crying, yeah. kneeling on the floor. There's no like, there wasn't, you know, chairs even set up. Yeah. And, um, but th th so that already connected with me. But then Jason started talking and he started to like, he started quoting like theologians. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is, you can do this. Mm. So this was a guy that didn't have a low view of tradition or the life of the mind. And this was very, I mean, Jason's evolved quite a bit, even over the years. This is still very early on in, early on in his ministry. He's co quoting guys like A.W. Tozer and Soren Kierkegaard in a charismatic so is meeting. The, is this the first time you meet someone who's kind of perfectly putting together this charismatic expression that is open to 
yes. the life of the mind. Yes. And I'm hearing this and I'm going, oh, this is it. This is like bringing these two things together. And I know there's other people out there doing it, but my my small world, Jason was like the first guy that I maybe saw put those pieces together. So I, after the meeting, I like fanboy and nerd out on the guys. Yeah. And I go, we've been doing this stuff and we thought we were the only people and like you actually like theology and yeah. this is so strange. And thankfully they weren't just like pump the brakes kid. They were like, well, give us your email address and your number. Let's stay in touch. And uh, thankfully Jason, actually his manager at the time, William, William was so like, hey, anytime we're in town, I'll let you know and we'll cover your conference fees for any conference. We'll, we'll set you up with That's a place right. to stay. And so for like three years, anytime those guys came around Michigan or Indiana or Illinois, it's like I was driving there. I didn't, you know, it was like, this is helping me piece this world together and I need to be in it. And you were so hungry. So hungry. So this is where it kind of gets weird though. Yeah. This is where my story is a little bit strange. So, you know, I'm I'm following those guys around. It's really, really helpful. And some of the relationships that start there open up this other world for me. You know, William was like, hey, you need to meet this. You know, Jason has spent quite a bit of time in the Virginia Beach area. And uh, he's like, you need to meet some other people that have been kind of part of this Virginia Beach, these new life churches. That's what they were at the time. And um, you should get connected with them. And and William introduces me, this guy, Sean Foyt, and I get involved with 24-7 worship and prayer stuff with Sean Foyt and this ministry that Sean Foyt does. And Sean travels all over the world. Start traveling with Sean. Um, we go down to Amarillo, Texas, to Kevin Prosh's place to do this recording. You're in deep now. In deep. I'm in deep now. I'm in deep now. While I'm down there, I, you know, people, there's several people, including Adam Cates out in Virginia Beach. Adam's a great guy. Pastor's a great church out there, Big House Church. Like, you should do a record of your own stuff. So this is back 2008. I do a record. Let's do the stupidest thing ever. I quit my job after it. <laughs> Yes. We, yes. We, You're living on faith. Living on faith. Yeah, but, man. You know, we had been traveling quite a bit for two years. Did you? Were you married? We're married. Did our you first have a kid? Our first kid was on the way. Oh my gosh. Yep. Bro. Yeah, All we, right. We keep, keep talking. We this did is it. Great. We did it on a dream. <laughs> like not like a uh, like a Disney like a, a dream, but like quite literally a dream in the night. Yeah, you had a dream, and uh, we got some counsel they're like well i think i think things from the lord and we still don't know how to process that one um quit the job like we're gonna do the itinerant ministry thing all these people that we had connected with over the years of doing 24 7 prayer stuff traveling with sean that were like hey when you do your record we'll bring you out well guess what year it is 2008 yeah and the recession hits all these churches they're like we're not bringing anybody in we're yeah. not gonna fly you in you know how much it costs to do that stuff? Yeah. I mean, to bring somebody in from the outside, you pay, you know, you have tickets, you pay their pay them. It's an expensive thing. You're like, I'm yeah. not doing that stuff for you. Um, but here's the wild thing. So quit my job. My CD finally gets done December of 2008. And it makes its way into the hands of this pastor in uh, St. Paul here. And uh, I had actually stepped in after I quit my job. I was like, someone thankfully the grace of god i was doing like a interim youth pastor role at this elca church so if you don't know what the ESA, evangelical lutheran church of america okay could not be further from charismatic yeah and i'm 
I'm like, what am I, what, what's happened here, Lord? It was really good because it exposed me to this other world, which I spend actually a lot of my time in now. And I actually, I, I, I feel most called to, which is a, a wider world than the narrow stream I was in. So anyways, I, I gotta, I gotta keep it moving here, but, uh, we've got the CD makes its way into the hands of this pastor in St. Paul who they were looking for a worship pastor and he listens to it. So this is a couple crazy stories. So they're praying about who they should bring in and someone had given him this CD. He was listening to it in his car and just asking the Lord, like, Lord, who should we bring in? Who should be our next worship pastor? Uber charismatic church. Yeah. We, he, he's listening to it in his car. He pulls into his garage and um, music stops, right? He walks into his house. His wife is listening to my album. And right when he walks in, it's the same exact part where he stops same in the car. Moment, same, same song. Same moment. He's like, okay. Clearly, we need to hire Paul. <laughs> right. This can only mean one thing. <laughs> this is the world we live in, right? Yeah, this yeah. is the the symbolic world of prophetic signs and dreams. This is how you make your de- make your decisions. So I, I go to church that week. It wasn't like they didn't offer me the job on the spot. They brought me in after service. This is so wild, man. After service, really good worship time. I go, we go, go to the back and the foyer area. This gal comes up to me and uh, older, older lady, she comes up to me. She goes, Hey, I, I think, I think you maybe know my son. I'm like, man, this gal looks, her face looks familiar. The way she talks is really familiar. I'm like, Oh really? Who's your son? My birth son is Jason Upton. <laughs> so this was J- Jason's adopted. And he didn't know his adopted parents up until recently, his, adop- his adopted mom. His, so Jason's birth mom had been attending this church, listening to Jason's music in the prayer room for years. This is in St. Paul. Yeah. I first met Jason in like Detroit area in Ann Arbor where I grew up. My wife is from the Twin Cities. Yes. I end up, they bring me onto the church and I spent four years there. And I, after I was like, how did I get here? Yeah. This is so weird. And, and one of the things I thought of was like, man, I, you know, Jason's mom had given him up for adoption instead of aborting him. Yes. And every week she got to see the fruit of that in this guy who was leading worship at their church. I was doing what I was doing because of the impact of Jason. Yeah. So weird, so strange. That is isn't that utterly bizarre? bizarre. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. So how long did you lead worship there? So we were there for four years, really ethnically, probably the most ethnically diverse church I've seen anywhere in the U.S. Beautiful, yeah, wonderful, very charismatic AG church, wonderful people there. Mike Smith is a gem. You know, he's a, the chaplain at the Capitol in St. Paul. Um, wonderful. Um but we had also found that this charismatic world was um, similar to the experiences that I had when I was younger. I, I, we were brushing up against this cognitive dissonance and I had a hunger for more. My wife and I had a hunger for more. And my wife has always been much more, I was like stuck in this pattern of, you know, the way you experience God is at meetings and you get people to come to meetings and you have conferences. And we, you know, for two years, I was trying to build a 24 seven prayer room because I thought the way that people have to meet God is through this way. Right. And thankfully my wife was always like, that doesn't actually help me. Like I enjoy having conversations with people and barbecues and going on walks and my grid. I was like, yeah, there's, you can't experience God there. Yeah. Thankfully, she she had a, just a wider world of, um, you know, just... And thankfully, she was secure enough in her own 
person to be able to say that to you. And, oh yeah, totally. And and she's and, she's never had any problem with that. Yeah, but maybe even be able to say that in a way that didn't like cause you guys to grow apart. No, we did though. I mean, that's the thing. Like we, we early years of marriage were difficult mm. because we I we had these divergent ways of seeing and experiencing God, and it was hard. I mean, it really was did hard. Did she grow up charismatic? She did. Okay. She did. I mean, and she, part of our shared story, she went to Oral Roberts University on a volleyball scholarship. Dude, word of faith. Word of faith. So we had this shared trauma. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she'd gotten kicked out of classes and stuff for questioning. You know, one her famous story that she always tells is they were telling her in one of her Bible classes how God is like a pop machine. You put your money in, you put your tithe in. No joke. You put your money in, you place your order. Like a pot machine, and this I, is where I, I go. clearly have never found this machine. I need to find this Please machine. Someone me. bring <laughs> yeah. me to this machine. I would love to find this machine. And she goes, Well, you know, she got kicked out of class for going, Well, what happens if you ask for a Coke and instead, you know, you get water? What happens if the machine doesn't work? They kicked her, kicked her out of the class. So we, we bonded over that like sense of this isn't working. Yeah. Um, anyways. And that led you to seminary really right yeah i mean it did you know i was i was it was like bivocational at this point we had had we had two children you know um I, my my wife was doing some self-employed stuff but um we really tried to let her be with the kids and so i went back into teaching full-time working at a church as well <clears throat> so i was teaching biblical studies theology courses I've taught that at Christian high schools for, I think, a total of like 11 years, maybe. So I was doing that. And she was like, I think I, it was really helpful because, excuse me, I, I was still every week I would, you know, I how this time immersed in this sort of transcendent world of communion with God through art, through beauty, through mysticism, through all this stuff. And then I also had this significant part of my life where I was like unpacking the scriptures and going through like systematic theology and comparative religions with, with students. And it was really, really helpful for me. And my wife was like, you, you need to, you need to go to seminary. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, it's too late in the game. Now we got three kids at this point. I just don't see how it fits. I was like, well, where, what's next? What's next in your future? And I couldn't see it. Honestly, I couldn't see beyond. And I was coming to a point where I had still been banking most of my life on being like a music minister. And I actually started losing my appetite for that. You know, what was this beautiful world of simple guys getting together in a room, strumming guitars, had now become this massive industry where... I never, you know, in my early years, no, I never, it never even crossed my mind that I'd get paid for playing a guitar. Yeah. And now I bump, and I, I'm really thankful that churches are are taking time to like invest resources into young people and they'll pay them. But now it's like the default. It's, there's so many kids around here in the Twin Cities that, you know, they come out of their, their Christian college and they've got a music degree and they're like, you know, 20 years old and someone's, someone's paying them just to play a guitar and to make their pedal board really sweet. And I go... Boy, I wonder if you need to get in the field a little bit more and work with your hands and not have anybody pay you. Yeah, it's a different world, isn't it? I mean, you you can literally make your way like that. Like I know some guys, and it's not judgmental necessarily, but it's just it's 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 interesting and it's a dynamic that definitely was not alive in when you and I were coming no. up necessarily. No. 
Nobody was going to pay you $400 a Sunday to play electric guitar for two services. No way. Yeah. No way. So I saw that world and I go, well, I'd have to live in that world if I'm going to make a living in that world. And I looked at the options and you got to, you know, there's the options available to me and my like skill sets where like I could, I could really try to go down the path of like a guy like John Mark McMillan. And he really, I love what John Mark does. And he's in this, this very different world. It's like, it's part, it is in the church, but he's also doing stuff. He's a unique guy. You know? He's an amphibian. Yes. Yeah. And it's beautiful. I love what John Mark does. And was like, all right, I'll have to do that. But that's, that's a hustle. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Do I want to put in that and sort of no work? Guarantees. And am I, am I as good as John Mark? No, I'm not. There's, yeah, there's, yeah. That's where we're at, right? And there's no guarantees there. There's no, there's no guarantees there. Where's your Howie, where's, where's your Howie loves? Yeah. No, I don't have right. that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have that. And even with that, it's like I, he spends a lot of time on the road. And yeah. I don't think, you know, I, we just we just couldn't do that. So I was like, that's that's not an option. So you, my wife threw out, well, it's just why don't you, you got this other part of your spirituality, which is really vital and it's really helpful for people, this world of teaching. I think you should invest more into that. Maybe there's some some fruitfulness that it could be more long-term. And so I jumped into it, had a tremendous experience, Bethel Seminary, a great, great experience <laughs> here, in, here in the Twin Cities. Yeah, here in the Twin Cities in St. Paul, um, wonderful, wonderful place, really broad, broad evangelical. So I could fit and go shoulder, you know, partner up some side by side with somebody that was a Baptist or, uh, you know, it was beautiful, beautiful experience. They had the exact degree that I wanted, which is this really niche, strange program It called a Christian thought. So I have a master's in Christian thought, which I always explain to people is essentially philosophical theology and very niche, you know? Um, and so I loved it. I had a tremendous experience. And so now it provided me some clarity. In fact, even in, it's been in like the last year or so, I've had more clarity on what I feel like. You were blessed to be a blessing in the world. This is, this is the pattern from Abraham. That's what Israel was supposed to be, a, pre, a, you know, mm -hmm. a kingdom of priests to the nations. This is you know, the model we see in Christ is to Christ comes into the world to bless the world for the sake of the world. And the church does the same thing. So coming out of that experience, I was like, I feel like, I feel like I, I got to do something and share this with the world. So I still, I still, my feet are in both of these halves of my brain, this, these two paths of that the church is affirmed of reason and revelation. Like historically, I still do that. You know, I'm a full-time pastor of worship in the arts at a church. That's what I do in my day job. Yeah. And it allows me to be invested in the arts and in liturgy and still in the contemplative and helping people commune with God through beauty. And then, you know, my, my fun side hustle is helping people through this podcast I do and, uh, you know, try to branch out and even do more video stuff to connect with people in this, the places where they're looking now. Cause I came to this place and I talked to some mentors that were, that were like the humanities department as a whole is dying in universities, but and there's this bubble, there's this debt bubble and student loan debt and the thing's going to burst and people are they're not going to spend $50,000 to get a theology degree. No, they can't. They can't do it or philosophy because the jobs aren't there. So what, what may be though, is that there is this intense appetite still for people to have their deepest questions of life answered and to explore that. And somebody just needs to meet them in a different arena. 
And I was like thinking about that. I was like, well, where are people going? Especially like men. And men very rarely read books. I mean, that's like podcast. Like men, podcast. men are listening to podcasts and they go to YouTube. They go to YouTube and they go to podcasts. So I was like, isn't YouTube something like some preposterous percentage tilted towards men? It's, I wouldn't be surprised. I, don't I think know it the is. I, 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 yeah. I'm clearly not a YouTube expert, but I want to say that YouTube is heavily uh, tilted towards the male demographic. Yeah. Well, I tell you what I love about your story so far is that it has this charismatic side of what, what might be classically understood as, you know, the spontaneity of the spirit, you know, and experiential. Yeah. And at the same time, there was something inside of you, even from an early age with the death of uh, that lady at your yeah. church yeah. that was questioning and saying, you know what, this isn't working. And so all these years later, God brings you to this spot where you are holding these two things together. And it's not like you had to let go of one to have the other, no, right? No. And, and really what I hear in that as well is really what we're talking about is incarnation. Exactly. Right? That's it. Like your mind is a part of your person. And so you can't be anti-mind and be pro-incarnation or, or pro-human. That's it. So That's it. Exactly. I, I, think, I think this is one of the things that, um, that is really coming through in your story for me. And, and I'll just tell you this as well. Like, I think the most uninvestigated point of theology, especially in charismatic churches, incarnational theology. Totally. It's, yep. it's, we just have not thought about it, stewed upon it. And this is, I think this is why I've been really touched by the Catholics because they have so um, really pushed into that idea. And it, but it makes space for people like you. Well, you know what? I was just at a, I went, my wife and I, we were talking about this exact thing. We had a date last night, very rare opportunity with three kids at a, That's right, you at got a away. relative's house. We got away, had some drinks together, and we're talking about this very thing um, in our experiences. And then we go over, you know, we're, we're hanging out in St. Paul. We go over to um, the St. Paul's Cathedral here in St. Paul. Beautiful building. I mean, just majestic. And we're, we're just enamored by the beauty and the physicality of the place. And the scale, I'm sure, right? The scale is massive, massive building. It's beautiful. And one of the things I think the Catholics have done a good job of, and this might be one of the reasons why I see more evangelical churches moving to celebrating communion or the Eucharist weekly, is that every week they are being told when they gather for worship that Christ's presence is in wine and bread. Simple things in the physical world. That you can touch and taste. That you can touch and taste. And one of, we always talk, I always talk about here that, you know, worship, and I don't mean music anymore, right? I'm talking about, we've got the light, wider world of worship of our lives. We also have worship, what happens when Christian community comes together. Reading of scripture. Reading of scripture. That We always talk about the three Prayers. purposes of yes. it, right? It's community with God, yes. communion with God, I should say, community with each other, and then to conform us into greater Christ-likeness. And one of the things that I think like weekly communion does, and we don't do it here at our church, so I'm not saying it's necessary, but one of the things I think it does, and it's been helpful for some Catholics, is it's conformed them in a way, it's formed their thinking to see Christ in mundane things like bread, 
And so I think one of the things that I'm I'm seeing charismatics do, and this is happening in a wider evangelical world, and even those that have kind of no longer considered themselves evangelicals, is now there's a there is a a wave of this sort of sacramental theology, and I actually think it's I, I think it's the antidote to a lot of our nihilism. I, our, I totally agree. We experience in our culture because one of the things we haven't done a good job of as evangelicals is we've actually had more of a Gnostic theology the ancient Gnostic heresy, which was like the physical material world is evil. It's broken. It's been such a heavy emphasis on the fall that it's gotten us to this point of the earth is so broken. Creation is so broken. There's no beauty. And people are. And people are. And then the solution is the leaving of this place to go to someplace else. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it doesn't give you a way of being in the world. Yeah. And I, I think this is where the incarnation comes in. And to yep. your point, like Catholic sacramentality around the Eucharist is that place. And one of the things that I've awakened to is that in the vineyard, uh, sung worship is our sacrament. Totally. That's where we meet God. That's the means of grace. That's where we meet with God, right? And one of the things that's even happening, I believe, in the vineyard is is there is an awakening to that. We we knew it. We knew it in our heart. We didn't know it in our mind. But I think we're waking to that. But then also there are some people even inside my tribe who are pushing the boundaries of what is sacramental within worship beyond just music and going, hey, you know what? Maybe we need to embody this not just with our voices in song, but maybe we do need to reconsider how we do communion and if we do it or how often. Right. And so I think there is that sense in which um, sacramental charismatics are bubbling up. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a really big deal. It is. It's huge. It's, and it's the way, it's the way that we actually, I didn't have a grid when I was younger. I didn't have a grid for seeing the activity or presence of God in changing my kids' diapers or having a barbecue. I didn't have a theological framework for that. My theological framework was still very much, and you hear this a lot. It's like, um, it's very much almost like a, an, uh, a temple metaphor, right? The Old Testament temple where the presence of God abides in a place. And our goal is to get people to come to this place. And so, so much of our church or ecclesiology has been the presence of God is here at our meeting, at our conference, at our prayer room, at our church, and the goal is to get people to come to here. And one of the things that was really helpful for me and it led me on this journey was people challenging that in charismatic circles and going, no, 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 the presence of God lives in you. And so now you've got this sort of really evangelical missiology and now you go out into the world. That was a gateway drug for me to start going, well, well, where is the spirit? And if he's poured out his spirit on all flesh, the spirit of God lives in me and, and the spirit is actually active in the world. There's no place that I can't go where there isn't an opportunity to commune with God. Yeah, and 
I think this is where the point of church becomes more and more about awakening people to the presence of the Spirit. Yes. So that they can recognize it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right? Exactly. So if I can find it in bread and wine, or if I can find God in a song, or if I'm finding God in meeting people that I know at church, maybe it's an embrace, maybe it's a conversation, maybe it's just kindness and meeting someone new, then maybe that could conform me to being that sort of person the rest of the week. It's, but it's funny how it oftentimes doesn't do that. It actually insulates no. us from it. But I think the point was uh, for church to be like an incubator uh, for the next thing. Yeah. Originally, the, I mean, what they called in the first two centuries, um, I think I think actually this was a, a term that, you know, non-Christians had given early Christians in the first two centuries of the church, or maybe generated within the church. I'd have to look back at my church history books. They call it the love feast. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, it wasn't even just in, in, in like the first century, for example, it wasn't even just that they would always end the service with bread and wine. They'd actually have a potluck, what was a potluck together. And uh, you think about the, um, for example, this is such a big deal that Luke's gospel, for example, I can't remember the exact amount of time, but Luke's gospel has all of these the scenes that are set around food more so than any other gospel. Well, the passage I'm going to preach tomorrow is uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? Yes. Where do they get a revelation of who Jesus is? When he's at the table with them breaking bread. Yeah. Then they're like, oh, it's him. Yeah. I mean, I had a moment last night and this this makes my wife laugh all the time because I'm often in this headspace at <laughs> the time. So we're sitting at this nice restaurant, bar area, and I just look around and go, what are we doing here? We're in this room. And this is where people, like when I choose to have a date with my wife, we go to eat somewhere. And you've got all these people that are gathered in this spot and they're having these sacred moments together over food, over drink. And it's like the Eucharist is all around us. Yeah. Communion is happening all around us. And so I think one of the things we get to facilitate is we get to highlight where Christ is already present and at work. We get to name it. And then we get to also play the role of correcting the distortions. So we've got counterfeit experiences of truth, goodness, and beauty, right? And traditionally, this is where I encourage anybody that's like coming from a charismatic stream, embrace the historic church. There's so much. There's so much you're going to learn from it. And it's not, uh, I don't think it's anything it's to be not gonna li- Yeah. And it's not going to limit your experience with God. No, it only expands it. So when I was like maybe 2012, um, in 2012, right around that time, uh, I, I had started reading a lot of Eastern Orthodox theology and this notion of theosis. And I went, man, this is actually what charismatics have been talking about, but we just didn't use this language. And there's all these things in the rich history of the church. I I would encourage people just go like dig into it because the stuff is there and it actually helps you make sense of some of the experiences you've had in part. But one of these things has been this historic emphasis on all truth, goodness, and beauty being sourced in God, right? And all of it comes from him. So, you know, there's no, like we talk, I mean, you probably heard this before when people talk about music, there isn't like a sacred A minor chord and a secular A minor chord. Right. 
right? So I, I'm happy that that conversation has been happening more and more when it comes to music as an expression of worship art. But it hasn't necessarily, and it will over the next few years, I prophesy this, I hope so, yes. that we're going to see it with people getting that when it comes to science and math and the other things that they invest their life into, that the, the, there's not a two plus two equals four as a Christian truth and a two plus two equals four as a secular truth. Any truth, goodness, and beauty, insofar as it is those things, is found in God. And God has given that in creation as an invitation to discovery. Yeah. And so well, when and I experienced that, when I experienced that like limited dose of truth, goodness, and beauty, whether it's at a football game, right? And I see, you know, people, football is very much in America, a religious experience. And so I can either go and be like, I'm not going to Vikings games because it's a counterfeit religion. And if you want, you can check out, I've got some podcasts where I lay this stuff out. Yeah. It, it's a counterfeit religion because for so, so many people, it is a substitute of uh, the truth, goodness, and beauty that they see leads them only to the created thing instead of the creator. Sure. So Romans 1, what's the problem in Romans 1 is that people have worshiped created things above the creator. So when I have a beautiful piece of music, I listen to Tchaikovsky or something like that, that's, it's worship when it leads me to the creator instead of settling for to the ask created for a question thing. that's beyond. Yeah. But, and even to bring this, some of this back to what we were talking about a moment ago, bread and wine, uh, Jesus giving this meal to say, this is my body, this is my flesh, but it's actual substance, right? And even you having sort of an awakening moment last night with your wife where you're going, we're sitting in a restaurant and we've chosen to have intimacy together by sharing a meal, but so did everyone else. So there's something sort of like innate in human beings. We know that whatever this is, it's sacred, right? Yeah. And, and there's something in incarnational theology that is actually giving us, to use your word, the antidote, not just for charismatic, you know, dualistic divisions, but I think, you know, massive worldwide yes. unification of sacred and secular. Like Jesus was trying to say this the whole time, right? Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's always all, been there. It's always been holy. The life is holy. It is. Your, your body is holy. Uh, your 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 family, your neighborhood, your job, your work, and and it also kind of like levels the playing field as well. It, it doesn't it doesn't say that being a pastor is more holy than being a mathematician or a school teacher, right? Like because if it's if if his body is bread and wine, if it's actual substance, then 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 maybe this job out here is really important. Yeah, and just just, just so we're. I'm clear that we're not just like, hey, the Catholics, because we've been saying, hey, the Catholics got this part right. Yeah. This is where Protestants got it right in the Reformation and the priesthood of all believers. This yeah. is an area where actually, for some reason, it wasn't leading the Catholics. They had this very divisive class system of priests and then common people. And then in the Reformation, you know, people are like, hang on a second. No, 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 no. We've got one high priest and mediator in Christ, which now we all have access to him. And so now we've got this priesthood of all believers, which, yeah. Yes, you can be a math teacher, you can work on the auto line, all of this are, it, man, it affirms the value of your vocation. And yes, this isn't just a way of piecing together 
for charismatic people, their bifurcated world. That's right. This is a way that we can help the world around us experience meaning and beauty and transcendence. And the spirit. Like and the, the spirit. The work yes. of God. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, really, really interested in that more and more. It's like just pastorally. Yes. Being able to say to people in, in the birth of Jesus, but then doubled down in the resurrection of Jesus. So like if it was true in the birth of Jesus, then if God is raising up Jesus with a body, this is why I can't let go in all of my deconstruction. I cannot let go to a bodily resurrected Jesus. No, you can't. Because if you do, then everything that we've just talked about has to go out the window. Out the window. Right. But if Jesus has been resurrected in his body and if he has scars, then God is saying for the second time, this really matters. Yeah. Whatever this is. And then, and then it also comes back to even that, you know, Tom Wright, um, new creation idea of it has to touch our eschatology as well, right? Yes. What is God going to do with the world? Is it going to burn or is he going to renew it? Does he believe in the world? Like, is he, is he, has he invested in the world and going to keep on investing in the world? He, he's got to. Otherwise, like the doctrine of God creating out of nothing doesn't make sense because then you're saying ultimately the, the theology that says God, you know, God's going to burn the world because it's been a failure is ultimately a reflection on God's character and ability. That's right. He, yeah. cre- he created out of nothing. He, he, you know, if you're going to hold to that, right, I can see, you know, some people, you know, like that's where the Gnostics said, well, no, he was creating with like pre-existing materials. And this is like you know, a lesser God, if he's creating out of nothing, um, and he's good, is there's a happy ending, a beautiful and good ending to come. Yeah. And we can trust in his character and his nature to do that. Um, yeah. And it gosh. also gives me a little more grace for myself and even the processes that I'm in. It makes, it makes yeah. me a little more Lutheran mm. in this way, you know, so. in terms of giving grace to myself for uh, the weaknesses that I have. Uh, To use even your example, like if God is creating out of nothing, uh, then to say that it's all going to burn, it does reflect poorly on his ability or his own imagination, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Well, I know that I'm a weak person. Um, And if God is uh, making the world and if he's raising up the world in Christ Jesus, and if Jesus is that first green leaf that has come upon the cosmos, then what's he going to do for me? You know? And I, I, I think there's a sense in which, um, I can be a little more generous with myself, not like giving myself a pass, but, but not giving into shame, I guess is what I'm saying. So what I'm saying, doubling down on sort of that Luther idea of, yeah, I'm kind of a mess, but the grace and the mercy of God is going to work this out for me somehow. And I can be a little more, I can have, just have a, have a little exhale for a moment. We're singing it tomorrow morning. Is grace that is greater than all my sin. Amen. 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 I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, Paul, this has been really, really good. Man, I've enjoyed it. It's so I know. funny. I have these conversations and just it, maybe you're having it too where the stuff we've talked about, it's, uh, I feel like it's on... It's happening in conversations everywhere. Like, I didn't know what we were going to unpack today. And, you know, my wife last night and I, for us to be having these conversations at 
I, I get that you're, the common denominator is that I was involved in both of them. Yeah. So it makes some sense. But it's really, I think, what people are wrestling with today is how to how does the here and now have value? Yes. How, if there is a God, where is he? Yes. Yeah, these are questions that don't go away. And we actually have to talk about them. One thing that I noticed is in the late 80s and 90s, when I was in the church, especially in the charismatic church, um, most of the questions and the teaching was about how to experience God or you know, how to pray for the sick or how to do healing. And that's all valuable. And we need to keep teaching that and giving people like prayer models for being kind to one another and, 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 and handling those moments with grace and mercy. But it's interesting to me that in the last eight or 10 years, the questions have changed and they've become more uh, rooted in theology and really philosophical questions of meaning and why does anything matter? And, and this is this has been my experience in the charismatic church and then outside in evangelical churches or maybe mainline churches or unbelievers. These are at the top of mind. And it's not just guys and it's not just nerds. Uh, this is, I'm running into this all the time. It's not just as older people. I'm running into this with uh, younger kids, uh, middle school girls or, at, you know, this thing is, it, it's in the water right now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so I think we have to wrestle with things like incarnation. I think we have to wrestle with things like sacramentality of our Christian experience. I think we have to wrestle with meaning. How does a person have meaning, you know? And um, I'm glad we're having these conversations. I'm glad you have your podcast. And I'm glad a lot of other people are doing this as well. Yeah. Yeah, just to maybe draw one line under something you said that I, I thought had so much wisdom in it. A lot of people are deconstructing or whatever. And I love that you said, let's don't throw out the historical church or the tradition too quickly. Right? No, I mean, what I tell people is like, if you're really, I mean, if you're really going to leave Christianity, you should know what you're leaving. Yeah. And um, the particular the particular stream or your tradition is not representative of a very, very diverse whole that's been happening for a really a really long time. And so I could, I could, boy, I, if you experience the suffering that so many people experience, there's a lot of, I mean, the problem of evil is still the, the greatest challenge, right? That's the one. That's the one. So if anybody walks away and they, they say, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I don't think I've ever gone, dude, you're an idiot. Yeah. But what I would say is like, there's a lot of people that go, I grew up in this particular thing. For example, my story. If I would have thought my story and my tradition is the sum whole of the Christian tradition, some of you guys are going to, some people listen to this, I don't even know who Benny Hinn was. And they're going to go on YouTube and go, you went to that? Yeah. And for me, that was my world. And it would have been a massive mistake for me to go, that is the whole world of the life of the church and what Christian spirituality has to offer. So we'd read wide. And this is another, this is a practically, if you're really serious about the truth, and this is another thing I encourage people to do, you got to read above your weight class. Yeah. Push yourself. 
push yourself. I mean, these are the most important things. I'm thankful, like people like yourself, Adam, and there's some some others out there that are, are are really trying to. They've got experience in this wider world of the Christian tradition and theology, and they're breaking it down. It's what I'm hoping to do to make it more manageable for people. But at the same time, you know, it's pick up pick up something that was written by somebody that's given their life to biblical scholarship. Pick up a PhD level author and work through it. You know, one of the best things like Jason recommended to me, Upton recommended to me, which was a stupid recommendation at the time. Yeah. I was like, so what's a good book that I should read? First thing he re- recommended me was Soren Kierkegaard. Bro, that's tough. And I devoured it though. Yeah. I devoured it. Yeah. And it was like, it was challenging at first, but I devoured it. And then it was like, oh man, now there's this and this. I'm going to read this. I'm going to get exposed to this idea. But man, there's so many people that stop because they go, this is challenging. And I just go, you're, this, this is your life you're talking about. The way you answer these big questions in your life, the narrative you believe about reality determines your existence and how you're going to live in the world push yourself to read some multiple syllable words. And I know that sounds condescending, but I'm saying it from a point of like, I was in a tradition that didn't do that stuff. I didn't read. I skipped every single book assignment in high school. I hated reading. But when I realized I'm going to have to, if I'm really going to figure out what life is about, it changed everything. Yeah. And what I found with books that are challenging is I don't read them very long at a time. No, that's I read a them maybe. I, may, I read them maybe ten minutes a day. Yep. yep. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to finish them either. There's no. so much stuff out there. Most of my stuff that I've read, I don't know if I've read it cover to cover because that's the wonderful thing about reading theology or philosophy or something like that. Is it's not like a, a story that you have to, you know, you got to get all the way to the end in order for it to really have mattered that you read anything at all. There's, yeah, you can jump in and out. Jump in and out. And you have five or six things. You probably do this too. There's probably five or six books that you're reading always right going. now. Yeah. yeah, they're always going. So push yourself to do that. I'm thankful that there's this world of podcasts and YouTube and stuff. But um, I, those can be hopefully helpful like gateway drugs and people really die. I hope nobody stops. Like if they listen to my podcast, they just go, man, I'm just going to take Paul's answers. Like, no, no, no. I'm referencing some stuff. All right. Now, go to the source material. Go to the source material. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that changed my life is when I got to be about 30, I got sort of a more insatiable hunger to to read. And it was my brother in law who said, Hey, okay, you're reading now, but you should read source material. Yes. And that was like, Oh, you're right. And so I did. And it was in some ways more difficult, but it was so much richer. Changed my life. Dude, we got to do this again. Let's do it, Adam. All right. Hey, one more question before we end, because this is always the question we ask at the end of the podcast. (laughs) Tell everybody a time that you experienced great joy. A time. Oh, man. It doesn't have to be the most. Like, what what top of mind awareness? What comes to mind as a moment you experienced great joy? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just last night with my wife walking into the St. Paul Cathedral together, experiencing great joy and wonder that we were doing this thing together, Mm. that I had somebody that we've worked through some stuff together with. 
Amen. And we've gotten to the point where we can have these conversations together and they're meaningful and we actually enjoy it and we enjoy each other's company and we're in this world of mystery and wonder that's so much bigger than us. And there's this journey of discovery that we still have to do with, with each other and with the world around us. Oh man, that's, that's it. Kind of, kind of hit the, hit the mark. Did it did? And yeah. you know what I hear in that? I hear that uh, in some ways your wife has won you over to her perspective on experiencing <laughs> God. Yeah, can I taking walks? Yes, holding hands. Totally. Being in great buildings. Totally. I, eating I, food. Honestly, I don't. She has. She's You've won, you. won, hon. You've won. won. There it is. I don't want to go to another conference. Oh well, I do, we should end on that note and. That should be your wife's ringtone. <laughs> yeah. Except whatever you're doing. Yeah, that's right. Maybe now you can make your plug. For that's her. right. That's <laughs> right. Well, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I have the most unconference conference in the world. That's what I've been told. It's not even a conference. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. like an art experiment. Yes, that's good. Yeah. That's good. By the way, it's called Songs and Stories. It'll be in August. Anyway, <laughs> yes. thanks for listening, everybody. Peace. Hey, everybody, this is Casey Corum, the producer of the Ferment Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I've got a couple ways you could really help us. First of all, review the podcast on iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. This helps more people find us. Also, connect with us on social media, on Instagram at the Ferment Podcast and on Twitter at Fermentcast. All right, people, see you next time.